Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from NUH Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing anti-Parkinson's medication. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions of the speaker's own. Can't even speak. Right, here we go. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. It's another uh, therapeutic special, and this time we're taking on uh, anti-Parkinson's medication. Uh, I'm delighted again to be joined by Canal Go Hill. Good Hello, Canal. Good afternoon, Dr. Thomas. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. How are you, Canal? All is well, all is well. All is well. Fantastic. And he's even got his green pen with him. Got it. <laughs> so, uh, when we uh, did our very first podcast and we talked about the role of the ED pharmacist, we, we mentioned some of the quality improvement work you've done on... Uh, anti-Parkinson medication prescribing in the emergency department yeah. and how it is a time-critical medication um, that we need to think about just as seriously as we do with you know, anti-epileptics and antibiotics. Um, so you know, we're going to be expanding a bit on that, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the pathophysiology of Parkinson's and then the, the, some of the pharmacological treatments of it. Um, a lot of your work going into this still? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the population of Parkinson's patients, it, it is a very dramatic condition that develops over a long period of time, yeah. um, slow, generally a slow decline in symptoms. And, and these patients, unfortunately, though it's known as a motor type syndrome, um, so it affects motor um, abilities, it also has got a lot of evidence to say it affects non-motor therapies. And Parkinson's patients, there's a lot of documented evidence to say they're at high risk of a lot of non-motor complications of the disease. So that's things, um, motor obviously things like falls and collapses, but there's a lot of evidence to say these patients have got a, partic- a particular risk of things like postural hypotension, mm. partly because of the therapies they're on, partly because of their actual autonomic dysregulation. Um, there's also things to say that they have higher risk of sepsis, um, they have higher risk of infections, um, various other com- comorbidities. So they make them, they make the population a very high risk therapy for us, particularly in the acute stages of care. Mm. Um, in terms of our diagnosis, we've got to be very mindful of um, also tailoring our treatment protocols and our management plans to mm. the needs of these patients. Um, and also then even further down chronic um, chronic treatment, particularly when they're inpatients or even um, out in community, have to be tailoring their management plans to their particular Parkinson's syndrome. Because it's, no one patient has a identical Parkinson's syndrome. It's um, a disease that's characterized by lots of different um, sort of syndromes, lots of different side effects of, of the syndrome that can affect people in different ways um, and potentially a very, very debilitating problem um, that can in- increase mortality and morbidity in hospital. I think in the, in the emergency department as well, the, the dramatic uh, effect that a skipped dose of anti-Parkinson's medication can have yeah, in terms of mobility, in terms of that patient's journey. It's a very visual thing. So sometimes, I mean, uh, all, all critical drugs are, are important, um, but when you compare, say, um, missing a dose of um, insulin, for example, it's, it's not very easy to necessarily detect a BM slowly creeping up. If you're missing, um, say, a critical dose of an anti-Parkinson's medication, um, these medications are a real crutch for these patients. They rely on it to be the right dose at the right time to be able to control their symptoms. If they miss it even by an hour, um, the effects of that, the knock-on effects, can be quite catastrophic in terms of their their inability to be able to move, their swallow reflex might go off, uh, can have quite profound consequences Mm. later on. Mm. 
So, um, what is going on then in Parkinson's disease? What, what's the what's our problem with the patient? Yeah, so Parkinson's disease, in effect, um, if we look at the pathophysiology of it, um, it's a breakdown of dopaminergic neurons. So this is a, uh, a neurological condition whereby there's this autoimmune or non-autoimmune, we're not 100% sure yet, destruction of the dopaminergic neurons in the part of the brain, the niagarostratal pathway, as we call it, um, that control movement for all muscles um, in the body. Mm. Now, with the breakdown of that, um, these neurons, we don't get appropriate neurotransmission of dopamine in that pathway, and it means we end up with various motor symptoms, uh, gross motor symptoms. So these are symptoms like bradykinesia and akinesia, so patients can potentially effectively freeze solid mm. at the advanced stages of disease, have no real way of controlling muscle movement. Um, earlier and moderate for stages, bradykinesia, so when they're going to try and do actions, um, they're finding it a lot slower, they're a lot stiffer, they're a lot more rigid trying to do these actions. Similar effect, because of the, the dopamine's balance with acetylcholine in that region, um, acetylcholine tends to take over because there's not as much dopaminergic excitation. They might get a tremor, um, they might get resting rigidity with it as well. Um, and then also it's characterized by, by differences in gait and posture, which are partly due to the ability for them to maintain muscle tone. Mm -hmm. So they'll tend to have what you might, might classically call the Parkinson shuffle. Mm -hmm. So they'll have a very uh, shuffling gait when they're walking and that shuffling gait makes them very high risk for falling over. Um, their center of gravity changes uh, and it means they can't do a lot of things that they would, would be able to do in the first place. Um, so when we're doing the initial diagnoses of, uh, of Parkinson's disease, it could be any one of these symptoms or a combination of them in any severity that would point us to that diagnosis. Um, traditionally, typically, it's usually a tremor that you'd see um, initially um, and that will deteriorate over time. Um, the resting P rolling tremor. Absolutely, yeah, the rolling tremor as we say. Um, those would be the typical motor symptoms. There are also non-motor symptoms. so. There's dopamine um, pathways in the mesolimbic mesocortical systems. So this affects higher functioning. Um, so decision-making, um, some of your risk-reward pathways um, in terms of impulse control, depression, psychosis, confusion. You can get a lot of um, psychiatric type symptoms with Parkinson's as well from a pathophysiological point of view. Mm -hmm. um, there's no, it's, it's, it's all very subjective. So we have usually the condition is diagnosed by an elderly care physician or a neurologist. Um, there's limited benefit for imaging and things like that, um, though there are particular clever CT scans and MRIs that you can look in the particular area to look for dopaminergic um, destruction in that part of the brain. But generally it's diagnosed as a syndrome um, associated with the symptoms. Sure. And that they, they can have a very like a doll-like face, expressionless face, yeah, very sort of quiet, monotone face, voice, and micrographia, the tiny handwriting. That's right, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of clever diagnostic things. <laughs> <laughs> Remembering back from my That's right. Um, so we, we've got our diagnosis then, we, mm -hmm. we've counselled our patient, uh, I think people more and more now know about Parkinson's, uh, and, and um, now what are we... We're starting our treatment, so what can we what can we do for our patient? Absolutely. So, unfortunately, uh, unlike hypertension or diabetes or, or some of these uh, more common conditions, we don't have um, 
a gold standard way to treat these patients. Unfortunately, mm. there are there are various guidelines. There's European ones, there's British ones, there's American ones, um, and they all have slightly different ways of, of attacking the disease from a pharmacological point of view. Sure. Um, the problem is that the, the syndrome of the disease is so varied, mm. and the way that the pharmacological action will work on each of the symptoms is so varied that it becomes almost impossible to, to titer a um, a national guidance sure. to follow for Parkinson's disease. So it is very much a individually tailored um, process for, for these patients. Now, this will depend on the severity of their symptoms, which symptoms they're getting, um, but quite importantly, it'll also involve their age. So their expected, li their sort of life expectancy, so to speak, because as we'll touch on later, this will affect your choice as well as how much the Parkinson's has affected their day-to-day -day abilities um, at a functional level. Yeah. Um, and it will basically determine how aggressively you'll treat the Parkinson's sure. So if we talk about the actual agents themselves, now the, the oldest of the, of the Parkinson's treatments, um, quite logically, if we've got a dopamine deficiency in the CNS, what we'll do is we'll give dopamine. Makes now, sense. Absolutely. So we didn't necessarily have pure dopamine to give back in the day, um, but we did have dopamine agonists. So we had agents that could agonize at the dopamine receptor in the diagostratal region, and that way we can potentiate the motor effects with the, with the neurons that we've got left. So dopamine agonists would have been the first mainstay of treatment. Now, these days the ones that we use the most are um, tigotine, uh, pramipexol, and rapinarol, rapinarol probably being our go-to um, agent because it's, it's relatively got the, got the best efficacy profile with the lowest side effect profile. Um, these have got demonstrated efficacy on dyskinesias and akinesias and even some effect on tremor um, and rigidity as well. Now, the reason you might use a dopamine agonist is they're typically reserved now for patients who are diagnosed with Parkinson's early in their life. Mm. Um, and have, are having motor type symptoms associated with it. Sure. Now the reason for this is, we'll talk about L-DOPA, which is the sort of gold standard treatment a little bit later. Um, but all of these drugs have a tailoring off phase. So unfortunately the, the disease to a certain extent is a progressive disease and it will get worse over time. And as a result, there's an element of drug resistance that comes into this, um, that comes into our thinking. So if you're giving dopamine agonists for 10, 20, 30 years at a time, you will find their efficacy will decline over time because partly because of the neuronal destruction that you've got, there's less receptors to agonize uh, and partly because of just general pathophysiological um, tolerance to the drug itself. So we tend to have to keep increasing the dose, increasing the dose, increasing the dose over time. Mm. Um, and what some clinicians will do in patients with motor symptoms is try and use a dopamine agonist now, first line, to reserve L-DOPA, which we'll talk about in a second, um, later, for later in the patient's um, disease progression, because okay. it's got more efficacy and we can get more bang for our buck by actually getting this done a little bit later. Okay. Now, that's not to say that we wouldn't use L-DOPA in, um, in a patient that's uh, been first diagnosed, if they were older, if they had very, very severe motor symptoms, L-DOPA does tend to be the, the better, the better um, agent. Um, just some notes very quickly about the dopamine agonists. As I say, rapinarol, typically the one we use most. Um, Ritigotine is a very important one. We'll talk about it more later um, because it's not an oral 
agent, it's a transdermal agent um, that can be really important for patients later in advanced disease where they've got swallowing difficulties. Um, it becomes a very important agent. Um, the very, very old dopamine agonists um, are things like bromocriptine, mm-hmm. pergolide, um, ergot derivatives, so actually re- structurally related to um, LSD, most people would know, know it as. Um, not necessarily causing the same effect, they had dopamine agonism, uh, generally they're not used whatsoever anymore because they had some um, cardiac toxic effects, uh, valvular defects people used to be getting on them. So generally now, pramipixol, rapinarol, reticotine, these are going to be the ones you'll see most of. Um, also, the dopamine agonists, typically over L-dopa, they will give you more of what we call the impulse disorder side effects and hallucinatory um, side effects as a result. So I move on to L-dopa, which was a, which was a revolutionary treatment in terms of Parkinson's disease. Uh, if you've ever seen that Robin Williams film, uh, Awakenings, know, yeah. Awakenings, that's the one. That's the, that'll give you the history of it. Um, and it was literally, if you read the documentation, it was literally as drastic as giving this L-dopa to a person and them being almost completely uh, symptom-free after taking it. So it's a really, really important discovery. Um, so all that L-dopa is, is effectively levodopa. It is the dopa, dopamine um, precursor. Um, and it's activated in the body to pure dopamine to be able, in, in the CNS, um, to agonize those receptors and, and basically fully replace what you've lost in by destruction of those neurons. Um, L-dopa is literally just L-dopa. It's not a, it's not, there's no different types of L-dopa. It is, it's a drug into itself. Um, the two key agents that we use for Parkinson's disease, probably the two first line agents, um, are co-carol-dopa and co-bell-dopa. Mm. So the problem with L-dopa is obviously for patients, we like to give them oral treatments wherever we can. They're nice and, nice and well, um, well received that way. Um, L-dopa, when it's absorbed in the peripheries of the body, so in the bloodstream where it's getting up to plasma concentration, it is broken down into dopamine and you're not able to get it in, into your blood, into your brain to cause its uh, effects on the movement. Um, and it's broken down by an enzyme called dopa decarboxylase. And what that means is you end up with useless dopamine in your circulation. And all that's doing is giving you problems with um, hypotension and nausea and giving you the general side effects without giving you any kind of benefit whatsoever. Um, so L-dopa had limited use because of that. You had to give very, very high doses to be able to penetrate the CNS. Uh, as the blood-brain blood-brain blood barrier, barrier absolutely yeah. I had to get it through that blood-brain barrier and the amount we were having to give people to get any kind of penetration through that blood-brain barrier was meaning they were getting horrific side effects so very clever pharmacists maybe chemists maybe um, created these drugs called dopa decarboxylase inhibitors so basically they stopped any peripheral breakdown of, uh, of the L-dopa before it got into the blood-brain barrier because uh, they cleverly found the deeper dopa decarboxylase wasn't present in the CNS. So if you can protect the L-dopa in the periphery, you're getting lots into the CNS and you're preventing some of these side effects. So there are two key dopa decarboxylase inhibitors um, that we use. One's called benzerazide and one's called carbidopa. Effectively do a very similar job. They just block that enzyme and protect the L-dopa. As a result, we now don't use pure L-dopa monotherapy in any patients whatsoever because we have to give too much to be able to get any sure. effect. They, they always come pre-packaged with these de- dopa decarboxylase inhibitors and the two drugs are co-beneldopa which is benzerazide packaged with L-dopa or co-caroldopa which is carbidopa packaged with L-dopa. Um, 
and there are two traditional preparations um, in treating Parkinson's disease. These have got effects on pretty much all of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, very dramatic effects. Um, and we'll use potentially a dose of between 50 and 100 milligrams of, of L-DOPA um, as a starting dose daily, and we'll tighten that up to the lowest effective dose to give them the, the best motor functions. Because as we said previously, there is an element of resistance that they'll get to this treatment over time. Generally, uh, as a rule of thumb, you need to be giving about one quarter of a proportion of your decarboxylase inhibitor to your L-DOPA. So 100 milligrams of L-DOPA needs about 25 milligrams of your DOPA decarboxylase. 200 would need 50, 50 would need 12.5, etc., etc. Um, trying to give any less than that means that you're going to get a lack of efficacy. And there are some older preparations um, which have got a very small amount of DOPA decarboxylase to the to the L-DOPA, which we just don't use anymore because they're sure. they're just not giving us as as, as much bang for our buck. Mm. Um, now, these come in a variety of different formulations. Typically, we'll start them in patients um, in a normal immediate release type preparation, maybe one tablet three or four times a day. Um, they also come in a modified release, which is really useful for our patients that have problems on waking in the morning because uh, they don't tend to have enough L-DOPA to get them going for their motor, motor function in the morning. So we can give them an MR overnight uh, and it tends to improve it. Um, we have dispersible preparations, um, which give us the option of a very quick boost for when there's an off period. Uh, and we also have um, different, different proportions of the DOPA decarboxylase to the L-DOPA, depending on the syndrome that we're needing to treat. Um, so these would typically be the most common drugs that you would see for a Parkinson's patient. Um, good efficacy, um, and you'll find they'll be taking it three or four times a day with a half-life about four to six hours, so mm. it makes general sense. These are the drugs that we have to get on time, mm. and these are the drugs, if there's any way you can get them into your patient, when, if it's safe to do so, they're the ones that are going to make the biggest difference for their Parkinson's symptoms um, at that point in time. Mm. So really, really, really important drugs. Um, we talked a little bit there about on-off periods. Um, there's an argument that on-off periods have been precipitated by L-DOPA. So somebody diagnosed with Parkinson's disease will have a general steady lack of rigidity, lack of movement across the day if they're not being treated. Once we then treat them with L-DOPA, um, they will have good episodes of, of movement as a result. The problem with that is if we don't get the tablet timing right, they will have off periods. So their mobility will go down dramatically uh, on an end of dose type period. Um, so if we delay that dose even by a little bit, um, there, can, there can be some big consequences because you'll typically have your Parkinson's patient saying, oh, I've got about three hours after I've taken that cinema, I'll go to the shops and I'll get my bits and bobs um, and I'm actually able to do stuff. If they don't take the tablet, if it's delayed and they're still in that mindset of being able to do things, um, there's increased risk of falls, increased risk of problems as a result. Sure. Um, so the timing is, is absolutely imperative. Uh, and you'll find over time, the doses will need to get higher and higher and higher and higher and more frequent to be able to give them the same um, the same effects of it. How quick does that take place, that, that needing the, the, uh, to increase the doses? It can, it, it's really, it can vary. Sure. Um, but generally you'd see over the course of, I mean, for some patients it can be 10 years you'll start to see resistance, some people it could be 30 years, it's it's variable. Um, Parkinson's patients are very, very good generally at being able to know when their symptoms are flaring and not being not sure. being as well 
uh, they're not getting as much action out of it, and then they don't. They'll often increase their medicines potentially to to compensate, um, and they'll have very clever plans written by neurologists to be able to increase them in particular circumstances. Um, so those, so L-dopa, you know, the best effect. Yeah. Is really, they're they're protected for that reason. Absolutely. Um, but in the emergency department or you know anywhere acutely, these are a medication to take seriously. Just as an anti-epileptic, do not miss it to give it if we can. If our patient's not nil by mouth, if we're not worried about their swallow, just prescribe them medications and make sure they're given on time. Absolutely. I'd, I'd go as far as to say that they're probably one of, in terms of a patient coming in on a chronic therapy, they're probably the most important drug to get right, to get available, to get given in an acute setting that you can, you can possibly have. Because you imagine if you're on overnight, and your patient, an elderly patient who is there overnight waiting for a medical bed, mm -hmm. and actually that's primarily a social concern, and you're thinking walking assessment in the morning, if they have missed one or two doses yep. of their L-dopa, you are not getting that patient out that morning. Absolutely. They're, on they're a hospital, be... on a, an A&E trolley, they're not, it's not happening, is it? Absolutely. There's good evidence to say that um, missing doses of these drugs cause people to stay in hospital for longer, and they yeah. have worse outcomes. As a result, you've, you've given a really good example there. That's classic. A mobility assessment in someone that's missed 12 hours of, of um, their therapy is just not going to happen. It's not a true reflection of their baseline. Uh, and that's why we've got to get it get it right early on. And that's that's a lot of the work that I've been doing in, in ED here with us, uh, where we're doing. With your green pen. With my green pen. Um, so a few little brief snippets about the, the L-DOPA preparations as well. Madapar Cinema. Yeah. So we said... Cobenaldopa, the trade name is Madapar. That might be a that might be what your patient refers to. The key thing is you remember that's also a Parkinson's agent, it's a very well-known brand. Um, and Cinemet, which is even older than Madapar, um, the other one, Cocaldopa. So quite often patients will know these drugs by brand. Um, just have a have an understanding that that is a is a Parkinson's drug and, and needs to be given very quickly. Sure. Couple of things to be aware of. Um, there's also a thing called uh, dopamine dysregulation syndrome. So it can happen to varying degrees. So if we give too much dopamine to a Parkinson's patient too quickly, um, it's, it's quite logical. If you think they've got a bradykinesia, they've got an akinesia, and then we throw a lot of dopamine at them, more than they need to, they will typically get a dyskinesia as a result. They will get a, what we call, you'd call it a Parkinson's flap. So you might see these patients be shaking violently, have uncoordinated movements, quite violent movements. Uh, this is typically because they're over-treated. So whatever we've been giving them is a little bit too much. Um, that can happen also later on in terms of on and off periods. So to be able to get any effect out of them whatsoever, we have to give them quite high doses and they become quite high risk of these dyskinesias. A dyskinesia is just as problematic as an akinesia in terms of mobility. So we have to make sure we get it right. Um, and the more fixed one problem, but fixed it too well and exactly, on the other way. Exactly. Um, so it's a, it is a problem there. There's also a, a problem in terms of abrupt withdrawal of dopaminergics. So yeah. there's potentially a syndrome that looks very much like, or would present a lot like a neuro uh, neuro a malignant syndrome, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome um, in terms of dopamine withdrawal because of the neurochemical rebound. So potentially abruptly withdrawing these drugs. Um, can precipitate some quite nasty effects as well. Sure. And you will occasionally see L-DOPA therapy being stopped, maybe in favor of a dopamine agonist therapy. So when we're moving people on from one to another, we have to be very careful about not precipitating these. Um, typically, they're quite classically associated with nausea and vomiting, just mainly because of that dopamine peripheral breakdown. There will mm -hmm. still be some of that. 
Um, and they can also cause postural hypotension, particularly with other, if, if your patient's on other hypotensive treatments, um, it's associated with postural drops. Um, it's difficult to pin, pin that down to the drug itself because the, 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 the condition itself, Parkinson's, predisposes you to, to postural hypotension. Yeah. Um, so it can be a difficult one. The very famous side effect of the L-dopa therapies and the dopamine agonists that we talked about previously um, is what we call impulse control disorder. Yeah. So, um, as we said, so dopamine, uh, Parkinson's precipitated by dopaminergic breakdown in the Niagara stratal region, so the movement center of the brain. But we did mention that there's also the, the other systems that dopamine are present in, so the mesolimbic, the mesocortical regions. These regions are responsible for your impulse control and your higher functioning. Now, as a result, if there's if it's if the dopamine's penetrating into your CNS, um, you will get some effects on those other higher centers. Now, as a result, there's been documented cases of um, impulse control, reward pathway disorders, where basically patients can become, in theory, very sexually promiscuous. Um, they can act in ways. It can have personality changing effects. Um, they can become compulsive gamblers. They can be compuls compulsive spenders. Um, you can have a lot of impulse control. Quite frontal cortexes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you might find that your patient will start to use recreational drugs, um, okay. basically do things that's in completely out of normal character. You've got an elderly patient who's just been started with Parkinson's yeah, medication. Quite possibly, it's still it's still absolutely possible. Wow. Um, so it's a key thing to do the follow-up for these for these patients to monitor yeah. their follow-up. Has there been ch any changes in mood, any mania, mm. any changes in habits, spending habits? And it's important. Classical to history. Yeah. Absolutely. And the patient themselves might not be aware of it because they're, they're literally having a neuro neurochemical imbalance. It's important to get some collateral from the family. Is, is this normal for your patients? Is this normal what they were before? Because yeah. it can be quite a classic side effect of the dopamine agonists and the... Wow. Um, and the L-dopa preparations in themselves. So it's an important thing to consider. Now, generally, those two agents we've just discussed, they, they're the mainstays of Parkinson's treatment uh, in terms of motor symptoms. There are a couple of other adjuvant-type treatments um, which we can add on for very advanced Parkinson's, or we can try before the dopamine agonist to see if in mild to moderate disease, if we can, again, put off the need to use the L-dopa uh, later on. So one of them, and a very old treatment for, uh, for Parkinson's, is the, the mono, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So these are the old-fashioned tranquilizer antidepressant drugs. Um, obviously, we're not using them for their antidepressant properties in this condition. Um, it's been found that MAOI is present in the CNS and is responsible for the breakdown of dopamine um, in the CNS. So the idea being that if you're giving an MAOI regularly, you're preventing the natural destruction of your natural dopaminergic reserves. And as a result, you're potentiating that effect and, help, and getting a motor symptom as a result. So in monotherapy, they're very they have very mild anti-Parkinson's effects, sure. uh, but they've been theorized to have uh, protective effects, neuroprotective effects on the, on the CNS in that respect. Um, so you may well see an early diagnosis of Parkinson's with minor symptoms on an MAOI. So your classic two being um, selegiline, and what well, can I remember the one, uh, the other one, Selegiline, and the other one will come to me, um, Ris Risagiline. Risagiline and Selegiline, that's the one. Um, there's also a newer agent, which is quite interesting, that's just come out quite recently, a drug called Safinamide, works on a similar pathway, it's got some good data behind it as well now. Um, and you might see the odd patient on Safinamide, which is another type of the MAOI. Um, 
got to be a bit careful with these drugs. They have a lot of interactions with other drugs. Um, they can also have effects on the higher centres, uh, mood disturbance, confusion. Um, so they have, they do have a place in Parkinson's therapy, but they tend to generally be as, as an adjuvant sure. type um, type therapy. I suppose the the benefits less with these. So it is the early, the mild disease. Yeah. Keeping the more serious stuff in reserve. Absolutely. Or when you're really struggling late on and to be able to give them some quality extra. Yeah. Absolutely. Just to try and potentiate that little bit of dopamine you've sure. got left. Um, on a similar note, there's a group of drug called the COMPT inhibitors, the cate oh god, this is a hard one. Catecholomethyltransferase inhibitors. So he has no notes, people. That was off <laughs> the top of his head. So yeah. I always say catecholamine methyltrep, but it's not as catechol O. <laughs> um, so these are drugs that work in a really similar way to the dopamine decarboxylase inhibitors. Yeah. So basically, COMPT is another enzyme that, that floats around in peripheral circulation. That is another thing that breaks down L-dopa. So the idea is that we give uh, a COMPT inhibitor um, in conjunction with L-dopa to be able to potentiate the effects of L-dopa, to protect that L-dopa and get it into the CNS. Um, the two classic versions of this, uh, there's two main versions. One's called entacapone. That protects, um, that protects the L-dopa in peripheral circulation um, in a similar way to the, um, to the dopa decarboxylase inhibitors. And there's another drug called tolcapone which also does that, but it, the effect also extends to the CNS, so that can penetrate the CNS and also protect the L-dopa in the CNS. Um, you might well find that the, these are used in your patients that are having these end-of-dose effects. So where the L-dopa is working quite well yeah. for, their, for their movement disorder symptoms, but the effect is peaking off after a few hours and they're having these off periods. Now the COMPT inhibitors, because you know the L-dopa is working, they're preserving some of their L-dopa function in combination with the dopa decarboxylase inhibitor. Um, there is a preparation where all three are, are paired into one. So you have entacapone, carbidopa, and L-dopa in one preparation, nice and easy for the patient. Uh, that's called Stilevo is the, is the classic name of it. So Stilevo is another very important drug that you have to make sure you get in, um, get in early and on time at that point. So there's some good evidence for COMPT inhibitors. The other one to briefly touch on is a drug called amantadine, um, which is becoming more and more popular. It's actually an antiviral. They use it for cold and flu in, in America. Um, interestingly, we don't use it for that here. Um, it's been theorized to have some effects on the dopamine receptor itself and also have some effect on, on the breakdown of uh, dopamine in the CNS. So there's an argument in very particular types of symptoms, so your, your tremors and your rigidity um, that you can use amantadine either, uh, like we said, either early on as a first line treatment mm. or very late on as an adjunct mm. um, to see if you can get some extra motor control from that. Mm. Um, generally limited evidence for it, so when we give patients amantadine, we'll give them it as a trial for a few, maybe a few weeks um, to see if there's any improvement in their symptoms. If there isn't, then we'll usually withdraw it because it also has some anticholinergic symptoms and um, some higher functioning Symptoms is that off license? I think, uh, I think it is off license if memory serves. It's not licensed specifically for Parkinson's. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember exactly now. But uh, I, I believe it's off license. I think we only really use it for Parkinson's. But I think it's off label. Um, only last one to, to, to think about is the anti muscarinic agents. Yeah. So, really, really old, probably one of the most old fashioned um, treatments. So, generally, the mainstay of all the Parkinson's therapies are that modulation of that dopaminergic. Um, as a trans transmitter, so potentiating dopamine in some way. 
Acetylcholine is the other balancing neurochemical with, with dopamine in the CNS. So the, it has an inhibitory effect rather than dopamine, which has got the excitatory effect. So the, the theory was that unchecked acetylcholine, because of the lack of dopamine, um, could be contributing to some of the tremor and some of the particular symptoms. So we can use drugs like procyclidine, drugs like um, uh, ben, oh God, tri trihexafenidyl, some of the very potent antimuscarinics, and they've got some limited place in, in early Parkinson's as well. Okay. Generally, they're not favoured at all um, because the anti very powerful antimuscarinics can cause confusions in, in themselves. Mm. They can cause a lot of very nasty, untolerable side effects, tachycardias, dry mouth, GI disturbances. Maradas are hatching. Absolutely. Hotters are... There's a mnemonic in that, I need to check that up. Yeah. So generally they're not really used very often, they'll be reserved yeah. for a very very specific patient profile, um, but you will occasionally see a patient on that sort of, um, those sort of things. Sure. Um, they're your general main pharmacological mainstays. Um, it's important to think about, if you do have a patient with Parkinson's, um, non-pharmacological treatments in terms of um, core stability and exercise. So the evidence is a bit, uh, a little bit sketchy, but there is a lot of thoughts about a core stability um, and exercise tolerance to be able to get the muscle strength and prevent falling. That can be an important intervention in Parkinson's um, as a key primary type, um, primary intervention. The other thing are the slightly more weird and wonderful things that are coming out now. So. There is um, a process called deep brain stimulation, which is done by some neurologists, whereas literally they will stick a probe in the particular area in the head uh, and pass a very low voltage through it. Uh, I used to work, uh, before I came here to NUH at um, UCL, which has got the uh, National Hospital for Neurology, mm -hmm. and they did a lot of, we had a few consultants there that did a lot of deep brain stimulation, um, putting these electrical probes in into the brain. Wow. and. Um, causing for some reason dopamine um, release and an improvement in Parkinson's syndrome as a, as a result, which is really interesting, but it becomes a really late stage uh, intervention for patients that basically don't get anything out of L-DOPA. So there is a certain percentage of patients that won't get anything at all out of L-DOPA therapy. And in that case, we'd have to be using completely different approaches for them. So deep brain stimulation is an important one. Also, we've got, um, we can give L-DOPA directly into the intestines uh, via a pump that's called a duodopa pump. So yeah, that's quite an interesting one. So that's again, like we said before, for, for patients that have the off periods, yeah. um, wearing off periods. So the idea that we can deliver a constant infusion of this intestinal gel into the, into the system prevents any of the off periods. Um, so that's literally given via a peg um, straight into the um, duodenum or jejunum. Um, pumps it in via, via this little pump and then they get a nice um, nice steady effect of, of uh, L-DOPA in their system the whole time. Seen a few patients on it, it's a really good drug, it, it works very well for those off periods because you can find some patients that are advanced patients that are needing to take their Cinemet or Madapar six, seven, eight times a day and they get very, very quick withdrawal off them um, and off periods so it's, it's a good option for that. Um, and the other option is uh, a drug called apomorphine, which is one of the dopamine agonist class. 
Everybody always gives me a funny look because you think morphine and you think, is it a painkiller? No, it's mm. not a painkiller. It's a, a quite potent dopamine agonist, so it has a lot of the same problems as we talked about earlier. Um, but we can give it as a continuous subcutaneous infusion. So you don't give it orally, it's um, a parenteral, we give it subcutaneously. Uh, and again, similar to kind of like an insulin pump, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like an insulin, yeah. an insulin pump. Similar kind of idea, we can, we can pop a patient on this apomorphine pump and it just uh, delivers a constant slow infusion of apomorphine. Nice. Uh, and again, gives them the motor symptom improvement as a, as a result. Um, problem is, because we're putting that into peripheral circulation, it's, it's heavily associ- associated with quite nasty nausea and diarrhea. Yeah. Um, so we have to, we usually do a test dose before we even, even consider it. Um, and we usually have to load patients with anti um, antiemetic drugs before we can do it. So we'll use things like domperidone um, for two or three days before we even started to prevent that nausea from happening. Um, so yeah, a couple of the other ones that you can use there, and they're, they're for particular syndrome, particularly um, individual individual patient profiles with the Parkinson's treatment. Um, you also mentioned a transdermal patch earlier. Absolutely yes. So. As I said, unfortunately, when we're particularly in ED, when worse comes to worse, um, you can have a Parkinson's patient that, that comes in, um, delays in care, or because they're septic or they're, they've undergone a trauma, you're not able to get these normal therapies um, into them um, because they, they're either their GCS is low and they're not able to swallow, or there's an aspiration risk, or they might even be confused or delirious, meaning that they're not willing to take tablets. Now, it's a really important situation to get right early on. Um, for a low GCS patient, um, we can consider uh, an NG tube, which is a really useful option because if they, if they will tolerate it and they're able to work with us to get an NG tube down, particularly if their swallow is deemed not good enough by a salt, salt assessment, um, we can still get that L-DOPA into their system via dispersible preparations on the NG. And we can pretty much give them the same sort of symptom control as they've, they've had at home, um, which, is a, which is a really good option. So NG, it is slightly invasive, so it's not for every patient, um, but it is a good option, and it's something we should always consider early on if you've got a, uh, the oral route is compromised in a Parkinson's patient. Um, we mentioned the reticotine patch, so if you're in a situation where they can't take orals and we can't potentially get an NG placed, um, we can convert their pre-existing Parkinson's therapy, whether that be L-DOPA or a dopamine agonist um, or whatever any of the other ones they're on, uh, to a dopamine patch and reticotine is the one we use. So there's an equation that we use that's actually it's available online. I'd recommend the Parkinson's UK website because they, they publicize the, um, they have a calculator built into their website. I'm not going to try and give you the equation to convert it um, because it's too complicated to do here. <laughs> But effectively, if you had a patient who came in on Cinemet four times a day of a particular dose, um, whose oral route was compromised and we couldn't get an NG in, um, there's an equation which would give us a particular dose of reticotine that will give us an equivalent effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to put that on a patch transdermally and we'll be able to get some sort of dopaminergic action from that, at least in a stopgap until we can properly treat the patient. Now, generally, it tends to be less preferred than trying to get the L-DOPA in. Transdermal preparation, so we have to think it's going to take quite a significant amount of time to get to steady state in the blood. Then at that point it has to break into the CNS as well. So there is there's a potential quite a big time delay um, in starting the treatment to getting an effect from the treatment. 
also we said previously dopamine agonists generally more associated with hallucinations and higher functioning side effects um, so potentially patients can hallucinate can get delirium on these kind of drugs so we try and use it as uh, as low as possible mm. it's also unlicensed to use it in this way so if we're starting reticotine for a parkinson's patient we will use start with a very low dose and tighter up in this circumstance we're potentially giving them a massive dose straight off and we don't know what the effects will be yeah. as a result for the best. absolutely um, and like we said we have got an option of parenteral apomorphine but we will not start that routinely mm. because of the basically the intolerance of it the nausea the vomiting um, and these sort of things so generally that will be a specialist decision that's not something we'll be doing in ED often putting it that way uh, so all options for your incapacitated Parkinson's patient let's say sure uh, I in no way googled this. This is completely off my memory that I remembered it. <laughs> you didn't lean across me just. Oh, I didn't lean across you to, to type it into Google. Uh, the uh, side effects of the anticholinergic uh, side effects can be remembered as uh, blind as a bat, mad as a hatter, red as a beet, hot as a hare, dry as a bone. The bladder and bowel lose their tone, and the heart runs alone. That's the one. That's the one. Absolutely. I think in pharma school I remembered it as anti-sludge. Sludge was the cholinergic side effects. And um, then I just thought of the opposite of all of those effects. Oh. That's just my, yeah, just my way of doing it. Sludge or anti-sludge? What's sludge then? Sludge. sludge. Sludge is the opposite of that. So sludge would be the, the cholinergic toxidrome, mm. which is salivation, lacrimation, urination, diaphoresis, GI disturbance, and onuresis, I want to say. I think that's, and I just think of the opposite to all of those. That's the way I do it. But you know, you know, each to their own. Each their own. Is that uh, anti Parkinson's done? Yeah, I think pretty much. I mean, the, the only other thing I wanted to touch on was some of our normal therapies that can affect Parkinson's therapies. Yeah. So classically, um, when we're thinking about antiemetic therapies for these patients, there's a lot that'll interact. So we'll use drugs like. Um, commonly used drugs like procloperazine, metoclopramide. It's really important to remember that these drugs are dopaminergic. They're dopamine antagonists. So quite logically, you do not want to give a dopamine antagonist to somebody who has a lack of dopamine in the system. You will make their symptoms worse, potentially. So mm -hmm. procloperazine, metoclopramide, um, levomepromazine is another one. These are drugs that are contraindicated in Parkinson's disease. Domperidone, interestingly, is a dopamine antagonist but it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So domperidone will only work peripherally on the gut in its antiemetic terms. So we regard domperidone as being safe for use in Parkinson's disease and is actually quite effective as well in Parkinson's disease. Um, equally, think about antipsychotic drugs. Um, so particularly the old first-generation drugs, haloperidol, mm. um, risperidone, things like this. Um, they're dopamine antagonists and they are also going to be contraindicated in Parkinson's disease. Occasionally, for patients that have got Parkinson's disease um, with, say, a mixed dementia, not a mixed dementia, I shouldn't say dementia, with a mixed um, psychotic disorder uh, or are having mood disturbances as a result, um, we sometimes use some of the newer generation antipsychotics. Um, so, quetiapine, um, risperidone, and aripiprazole, typically the ones we will use the most of. These are dopamine antagonists, but we use them at very, very low doses and we will use them very, very carefully. Um, if you're seeing motor fluctuations or a deterioration in symptoms on these patients or on these drugs, always consider that that could be a precipitating cause. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, it's pretty much. But they're the, they're the main ones I can think. I think there's probably a few others, but they would be the key ones to consider when you've got a patient with Parkinson's disease. Thank you so much again, Canal. Pleasure. Thank you for bringing uh, your green pen to the take all your recording booth. Always happy. Look forward to recording to you again in the future. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was the Take Orally Therapeutics Anti-Parkinson's podcast. You can find the blog entry and the take visually for this podcast at www.takeorally.com. For more information about education and research opportunities within acute medicine, emergency medicine and major trauma, you can find Any Wage Dream on both Facebook and Twitter. Take Orally can also be found on both Facebook and Twitter.